You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. More malware designed for air-gapped systems. A British utility sustains a ransomware attack. The U.S. Cyberspace Solarium Commission sees lessons in the pandemic for cybersecurity. Contact tracing technologies take a step back, maybe a step or two forward. Robert M. Lee surveys ICS security around the world. Our guest is Ian Pitt from Log Me In with lessons learned while working remotely during COVID-19. And criminals increase ransomware attacks on hospitals and swap templates to impersonate government relief agencies. From the CyberWire studios at Datatribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, May 15th, 2020. Two more malware strains targeting air-gapped systems have joined the Ramsey malware ESET described Wednesday. Trend Micro has announced its discovery of USB Ferry, a tool the Tropic Trooper threat actor is using against Philippine and Taiwanese military targets. Tropic Trooper, also known as Keyboy, is probably a Chinese government unit. And Kaspersky has found CompFun active against European diplomatic organizations. The researchers attribute it to the Turla APT, a Russian state-sponsored operation. The functionality that gives all three tools the ability to work against air-gapped systems is neither particularly spooky nor exotic. It's the way they move malware and data between targeted systems and removable storage media. Eventually, somebody plugs something in. The British electrical utility Alexon yesterday disclosed that its internal IT systems and laptops had been affected by an unspecified cyber attack. ZDNet thinks it looks like a ransomware attack, perhaps enabled by Alexon's use of an outdated and unpatched pulse-secure VPN. In any case, as The Guardian reports, the lights stay on. Transmission remains unaffected. Apparently, only business systems were affected. A quick note to avoid confusion on the part of American listeners. The British utility is Alexon, not, as a few media reports have written, Exelon, which is an American power company and, indeed, the corporate parent of our own local Baltimore Gas and Electric. The U.S. Cyberspace Solarium Commission, whose report led with an introductory work of fiction that imagined Washington laid low by a massive cyber attack against infrastructure, the capital reduced to a hellscape that could be safely viewed from no closer than Reston, sees lessons in preparation from the pandemic. The co-chairs of the commission, Senator Angus King, independent of Maine, and Representative Mike Gallagher, Republican from Wisconsin's 8th, are ready to talk to Congress as the COVID-19 emergency begins to abate, and they hope, according to the Washington Post, that legislators get the lesson that it's important to prepare for a disaster before it hits. Senator King told the Post, quote, I think COVID has taken public attention away from cybersecurity, but for policymakers, it's underlined the importance of having a comprehensive strategy in place 
and really strengthen the case for the actions we recommend. We're in the middle of a crisis that has shaken people to say we can't go back to business as usual. End quote. And there are some signs that Congress may be willing to listen, at least a little, Two of the commission's recommendations, creation of a national lead for cybersecurity in the White House with a significant budget and staff, and both planning and spelling out clearly the consequences adversaries will face should they mount a serious cyber attack against the U.S., appear to have gained traction with lawmakers over the past month. That second recommendation is reinforced by the emergence of a more hawkish consensus about China that's emerged during the pandemic. The Post quotes Representative Gallagher on both points, quote, You look back on the 9-11 Commission and you realize how much good work was being done before the attack, but it was all siloed at different agencies. We want someone who's in charge and coordinating efforts across the government, forcing discussions across agencies about different scenarios and how we can prepare for an attack. He also said, I think if nothing else, when the dust settles on coronavirus, it will harden the hawkish consensus on China and add energy to this effort to wean ourselves off our dependency on certain things produced in China, end quote. The Cyberspace Solarium Commission is expected to release by the end of this month a follow-on report summarizing the lessons it's drawn from the COVID-19 emergency. The mild-looking Senator King seems an unlikely counterpart of the thing from the Fantastic Four, but he appears to have adapted the thing's battle cry to cyberspace. Put down them hankies... It's clobberin' time. At the end of a week in which British NHSX's contact tracing system faced skepticism about both its legality and its efficacy, NHS gets some good news from the pilot being conducted on the Isle of Wight. The Telegraph reports that more than half the people there with smartphones have downloaded the app. 50% has generally been regarded as representing the floor of adoption rates that might actually make a difference in controlling the spread of the disease. The Telegraph also has an overview of the various technical adjuncts to traditional quarantine and contact tracing various nations have tried. The approaches fall on a spectrum between people's willingness to volunteer and intrusiveness. Bluetooth-based exposure notification to GPS-based movement tracking, thermal cameras in public places to nearly ubiquitous facial recognition surveillance, and so on. There are also questions about the amounts of public resistance to tracing and tracking authorities can expect. A Washington Post-University of Maryland poll taken at the end of April concluded that most Americans would be either unable or unwilling to install contact tracing apps voluntarily. And if most of the non-compliant don't fall into the unwilling category, then we don't know Arkansas. Finally, can we all agree that criminals don't in fact have the common good at heart? Still think there's public-spirited honor among thieves? Well, consider this. The Wall Street Journal reports that Europol has warned of criminals increasing the rate of ransomware attacks against hospitals providing urgent care during the pandemic. This is as economically rational as it is morally depraved. The hospitals are more needed than ever, and the reliability and availability of their data are more important than ever, which the criminals calculate will make them all the more likely to pay a hefty ransom. The underworld is also paying attention to how it crafts its fishbait. Proofpoint has found a number of templates in circulation that help criminals craft more convincing spoofs of government messages, especially messages involving the emergency relief programs, so many of those in economic trouble find themselves hoping to use for a leg up out of their difficulties. The templates are most often used in credential harvesting scams. Robin Hoods, 
Honor Among Thieves? Oh, fooey, as Woody Woodpecker would say. And Woody Woodpecker knows. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. My guest today is Ian Pitt, Chief Information Officer and Senior Vice President at LogMeIn. He brings us insights on what folks in the password management and authentication business have learned during this global shift toward working remotely during COVID-19. Yeah, as the the CIO for a global company that also does collaboration tools, I get to look at two sides of the the situation. Both getting 4,000 people home in a, a company that had a, a heavy office dependency, but also set up to, to work from home periodically to actually move people back full time. And then keeping the lights on for millions of our customers. Looking at both sides of the coin, we've got our own internal team members, of which that's 4,000 people around the world, and then millions of our customers. So the, the initial focus was absolutely to get all the team members in a spot where they were safe, isolated, adhering to any state or local regulations, making sure that they could help keep the company afloat because we're also supporting millions of external customers. And if our team members aren't healthy, then that's going to detract from the, the external crowd. So very quickly, we had to move the remaining uh, of the 4,000 people, get them set up, give them guidance on what to take with them and how to set themselves up at home and help them in that transition. 
After that, then we started looking at the production capacity and it became clear that many other customers were doing exactly the same as us. And our traffic went off the charts. We had to stand up additional capacity in a very short space of time to make sure we were offering a quality service to people around the world. It seems as though uh, we're in for perhaps another few months of this ahead of us. Um, Do you have any tips or or advice for folks to, uh, in terms of keeping vigilant throughout this? Yeah, there's a whole bunch of standard things people should be doing anyway, but perhaps it's always good to remind them. And that's looking at security as being multi-level from the devices you're using, your home network. Some people have gone out and bought new routers, new firewalls to to get ready for the, the long haul. It wouldn't be unheard of of people to forget to change those passwords either on the the network access or the device itself so we we do constantly remind people that no matter what your stance is in the office you have to take it to the next level at home so password quality make sure your devices are secure make sure you don't have people eavesdropping a challenge can be in high density populations there's always people looking to ride on top of existing traffic and so make sure that your encryption keys are nice and strong. What about tracking the emotional component of this? You know, it, it's I think it's real, realistic and reasonable to expect that everyone might not be at their best, uh, which means that um, they might not be capable of being as vigilant as they would otherwise be. Um, how do you integrate that reality into an organization as large as yours? We got the the technology under control pretty quickly based on what we do as a company, which gave us the opportunity to actually start looking at people's well-being. And to be honest, most of our conversations now with HR, our chief of staff, our general counsel, myself, the, the group of people that we formed for a business continuity program, spend a lot of time thinking about the, the well-being of the team members. In terms of the keeping everyone sharp, it's, it comes down to encouraging people to actually step away from the desk periodically. It's too easy when you're sitting at home to get to your desk at seven in the morning and start working and all of a sudden the sun's gone down again at the other end of the day. We are making sure that people actually step away either for an hour, actually sit down, take coffee somewhere, sit down with your family, have a real lunch rather than just on the go. And the, the company is also encouraging people just to have a, a complete downtime day. No laptops, no computers. And we're finding that is starting to, to really work wonders with the team. And I think it's important for other companies to do the same. Otherwise, the team members are going to get burned out. And that's where errors come in. And that's where the bad guys get a, an edge into the, the organization. That's Ian Pitt from Log Me In. Don't forget, you can catch an extended version of our interview when you sign up for CyberWire Pro. You can do that on our website. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Robert M. Lee. He is the CEO at Dragos. Rob, it's always great to have you back. Um, I I wanted to uh, get your insights on the state of ICS security around the world. In other words... Uh, as we travel around the world to different nations, to different continents, how much variability is there when it comes to uh, different organizations and their ability, the state of things, their ability to defend themselves? Where do we stand? 
Yeah. Oh, man. A- asking the question right up front, like, Rob, would you like to make angry all the people around the world that are about to be called number two? <laughs> yeah, great. Great. Thanks, man. I always appreciate sure these uh, softball I'm, questions. I'm here for you. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So, all right. So here's my candid point of view. Uh, and, and I mean this with all due respect. I feel like Ricky Bobby. All due respect, you know, to <laughs> all of those that are about to get upset. But here is my perception and experience um, with different industries and different geos. And I do think it's important to also break out the, the different industries and ICS across those different mm-hmm. geos. So here's, here's how I kind of view it. I view there okay. to be kind of this waterfall where there's the leading and then there's a little bit behind per industry. And then there's a, the leading and a little bit behind per in, um, geo and they kind of overlap nicely. So when I look at who is the most mature ICS industry and geo um, overall, I, I would say the electric sector in the United States. Now they've had very significant regulations for years, which regulation is not security, but it's put a lot of focus on it since you know, 2005 timeframe, 2004 timeframe when you had the major incidents and, and looking at being able to take security a little bit more seriously. And I think even the, the White House was communicating to the sector, PDD 63 back in 1998, like, hey, you got to get ahead of this. Electric sector, United States by far. The thing I will say about that, though, and I, this is true for everybody, is the status of the industry today was essentially doing the IT security controls that made sense, or I don't say it makes sense, but didn't break the ICS over in the operations environment. So the status of everyone around the world has been copy and paste the IT security controls out of frameworks, GRC, you know, standards, regulation, et cetera, and use them in operations. And that was good. And we were all doing the right thing with what we understood of the threats. These last hmm. couple of years, we have had an increasingly uh, keen understanding of how the threats operate in the industrial networks, and it, and the IT security controls don't work in the same way, and many of them aren't effective against the techniques we see. So I would say we're all behind the curve, but not because people have been doing things inappropriately. It's just because we now know more, and now we understand the next phase of challenges we have. So that being said, I would say the industry-wise, I generally see electric in number one. You know, oil and gas kind of comes in number two in most places. Um, after that, I would actually say probably more along the lines of like rail um, would be there, which mm-hmm. is kind of surprising, I think. A lot of people don't think about rail as ICS in general, but they have tons of it, and, and they are starting to take it more seriously. Um, after that, probably food and beverage manufacturing, getting into... Uh, probably below that, other types of manufacturing. Below that, probably organizations like mining. Below that, you start to get into your your other types of operations environments. Um, just as a general, we don't have enough data, and there's a lot of stuff going on, like water and similar. So it's so we know that hmm. there's not a ton going on, but it's also not too fair to critique it because we don't have a lot of the same insights that we have in the same other industries. So that's kind of the flow of the industries. Now there there are individual companies that have by and far blown past that. So it's not saying like every company is the same, they're, they're, but just as a general industry. Um, hmm. And I think that there's something to be said about the community in each one of those industries and being connected together. Um, hmm. On geos, so take that waterfall of industries and apply it to every geo, I would say North America, especially in the U.S., this is a very American thing for me to say anyways, but your U.S. industry is definitely forward-leaning <laughs> um, and, and trying to take things as seriously as they can. So that's the first one. 
I would say the second is, and it's hard to go regions now. It's probably more appropriate to go countries, but I would say the second is some of the countries in the GCC or the Gulf Coast countries. Um, they're very um, keenly aware of the risks and they're trying to take it very seriously as well. Um, and so they're trying to put a lot of focus on it. Then probably after that might be like Australia. Um, and then after Australia, I would think some countries in Europe, but not Europe overall. Um, hmm. Then there are some countries in Asia, like Singapore is trying to do a lot around this topic. And they've talked broadly about having like an OT security strategy for the country um, and publish that document. Uh, and then sort of everybody trickles after that. Now, I think the surprising thing there is people would normally expect it to be U.S., then Europe, then kind of everybody else. And it's just not. Um, I think it's U.S., some countries in GCC, Australia, some countries in Europe, the rest of the countries in GCC, the rest of the countries in Europe, and then kind of everybody else. You are either in a country that, and this is so biased, by the way, but just just here's my two cents. You're either mm -hmm. in a country that has an intelligence community that has focused on this for decades. So this would be like your Five Eyes countries, like uh, Canada, UK, US, Australia, New Zealand. And so they had a lot of people that kind of understood the challenge and then moved into private sector and brought with them some of that expertise. Or you were getting punched in the face a lot. And you look in like the GCC, like they know who their adversaries are. And so they're developing this keen expertise and they have more opportunity to develop expertise than probably any other country in the world right now. Mm. And so there, I, I see some of those countries and some of those companies in those countries like rising to the occasion. Then there's kind of everyone else going, well, how much does this impact us? What is the real risk? You know, I, I visit with a number of European companies like, ah, we just really care about resiliency. Like, who cares about like the threat? And it's like, dude, do you know you're really close to Ukraine? And that's like where a lot of this is happening. And and I think right. it's uh, it's that kind of hey, guys, you need to take it seriously. And in some of those countries, they understand the impacts and the threats and can name them and take it very, very seriously. Yeah. All right. Well, as always, uh, interesting insights. Uh, thanks for sharing them. Robert M. Lee, thanks for joining us. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.